Welcome to episode 630 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Radio team, welcome along to episode 630 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom, Bevan James. Oh, so you go, mate. I'm pretty good, Bevan, and you? Bloody brilliant, mate. So you had your uh, challenge wrote $20 jacket on this morning? I'm, I'm, I'm a whore between both brands today. You're a whore between both brands? I have my challenge, my, my 20 euro challenge uh, wrote jacket on, and then I've got a Iron Man Hawaii 70.3 finishes t shirt on. You should have the winners. Entries, would say entries open for that this week, and I've booked all my booked my flights for Kona yesterday. Special on New Zealand, seventy two hour special. Are you a gold member? You must be a gold, I'm member, not a gold member. No, I keep just just missing out. I Peter. think I'm going to make it. You're going to make it. <laughs> I think I'm going to make it because we've got we've got Kona coming up, yeah. which will get me close. But I'm going to Amsterdam about a week later, and luckily for me. They want me to go up through a certain way. And I said, oh, I'd love to go through LA purely just to get the points. <laughs> so I've got the points. I was like, I'm going to spend about three or four days in LA on the way home. So I'm thinking I'm going to go gold member, John. I'm pretty happy about that. I'm Talk is proudly brought to you by... Extreme Endurance. Lactic Buffer. And our patrons. It's name a few, John, but you have to because I don't have it in front of me. Phil, the material provider, or the Philinator Patterson. I think you know, you know which one he prefers. James, Age of Danger Picker. picker. Nice. And Thierry Dialis Biasadi. What's Dialis stand for? Dirty Little Secret. Oh, that's right. Dirty Little Secret. Okay, guys, in this week's show, we've got news, we've got discussion of the week, we've got age group of the week, we've got website of the week, we've got a great interview, which we've already done with who, John? With Alan Lim, Dr. Alan Lim, who runs Scratch Labs, also an exercise physiologist who's hung out a lot with the Tour de France, uh, helping teams there. So, really, some really good stuff coming up. Pretty, pretty wise man. Uh, Wanger of the week, questions and answers at the end, and that's pretty much it. John made a lot of racing happening over the weekend, so let's start with Ember Man. Slow down, Bevan. You're talking too fast. No, I always talk too fast. Go I know. It. I saw somebody post on Facebook. Do you know slow what? Slow down. No, the talking fast thing, and I always dispute this because your brain, <laughs> no, because you wouldn't like, your brain can process really fast. Yeah, but with a different accent. If you're talking to a Kiwi, ah, that's okay. Hey, whoever's got, get Listen it. Get to our American <laughs> audience. Donald might be listening. Donald, get over it. Where you go? Okay, uh, we'll go through some of these quickly, some of these not so quickly. Uh, Embra Man was first up, and we had uh, Diego Van Louis from Belgium. Never heard of him before, but he sw- he won it uh, in nine hours forty-five ahead of Jaroslav Koviak from Slovenia. And my God, there's some great names that I can't pronounce here. Uh, Gwenael. Utiliers from France in third place. So we had four guys go under 10 hours. Uh, the winning time, 59 minutes swim, 5.57 on the bike, 2.44 on the run for a 9.45. And I've talked about prize money before. Really good at this race. 25,000 euros uh, first place and 2,000 euros drops down to seventh place for Scott DePhilippis. Uh On the female side, Carrie Lester won this race again. She swam 51, rode 6.38 and ran 3.17 for a 10.51 ahead of Charlotte Morel from France and Judith um, Baquerio from Spain in 11.20. One criticism of this race is uh, they're sexist pigs and they don't do equal prize money. So oh, they don't. It's only 19,000 wow. euros for first female and it only pays five deep. We have to give them a hard time about that. We do. It's a typical French thing. It's, it's not uncommon in France for that to happen. So uh, it's, yeah, 
it's good, great prize money, but it's not equal, and that's not acceptable. Yeah, that is. That's really not. No. You know, in today's times, you know, back in the old days, it wasn't good enough. But today, how do they get away with that? Mm-hmm. John, we also had Copenhagen, and uh, Tim Dom was in the lead, but ended up DNFing, ended up pulling out of the run at twenty six k's. Although I don't think he's in the lead there. He's in the lead early on the bike. I watched a bit of the coverage of this, and yeah. uh, he took off at the start of the bike by the look of it. Uh, he was with the leaders out of the swim, and then had a, a decent lead. You know, it was sort of getting up to one to two minutes. Uh, and then uh, another person I couldn't see on the finishers list, uh, Alenzo McKerner. That was, I can't remember his first name. Uh, but then he was in the lead and just crushing it. Uh, and so both those guys must have uh, blown themselves to bits on the bike and didn't end up finishing. I do still think that... Uh, Tim Don, I think it's going to scrape into Kona Bevan. Just. We'll go through that when we do the KPR stuff. Uh, So Cyril Vinot ended up taking out the race. One thing I... I do like the the new I Am Talk uh, app, uh, uh, but on the website you can't... You mean Iron Man? Iron Man, yeah, the Iron Man. We don't really have a new app. Oh, don't we? No. <laughs> the no, Iron Man we'll app. One. But you can't see their split times very easily. You have to click on each individual name. So I'm just going to give Cyril Vanoa a bit of love here because he was the race winner. He swam 49.14. He biked 4.18.51 uh, and then ran a 2.47. So very solid. He ended up with a finish time just under nine hours. He went 7.59.52 for a, about a three-minute victory over... Christian Hogelhug and Guialo Molinari was third in 8.05, so pretty fast racing over there. We had some, um, Tim Don, um, Tim Hemming, sorry, sent through uh, uh, just saying how fast the female age group was. First fast female, I think she did like nine hours. And Solid. Her, and her name is Christina. Oh, John, you were struggling with names before. Uh-huh. I'm going to do the Apple one here. <laughs> Let's have a look. Let's have a look. Thathstrip. Um, got around nine hours, I think, in this in the women age group. That's pretty impressive. That's very solid. I'm just going to have a quick uh, look here. God, it's really clunky to get through this website because nine hours on the dot. Nine hours on the dot. Well, the photo here, it literally this nine hours. She's coming across the finish line. It's nine zero 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 zero. Wow, that's impressive stuff. We've got, we've got to say we had the, did have this question a while ago. Has there ever been any females that have gone? Sub nine in a race. Do you mean as a as an age grouper? Yeah. yeah so well, she went she nine hours. Sub nine. She went I nine know, hours on the dot. Uh, the, the next fast because this was a men's only pro race. Yeah. We did have some pretty other stellar performances. We had a couple of females that went nine thirty six. Uh, fast racing females. Nice work. That's a great effort, man. Yeah. Then we also had because um, that was a male only pro race. We also had the female. Pro only race, which was over in Sweden in Kalmar, and a really impressive performance here by Karine Abraham. Yeah, it really was, wasn't it? F- 57 swim, 434 on the bike, and 309 on the run for an 84506, setting a new bike course record, and I think it was a course record overall, uh, beating out Asa Lundstrom by uh, about nine minutes or so, and Angela Nath in third place in 901. Uh, so Karine Abraham is on fire. Really and, is. and when when you look at that result, uh, often you know, and I'll do this as, w- as well with I'm in Montreal Blanc. You look to what the top age group guys are doing, and I think, I think there was only one that beat her, uh, one or two. Like she was right up there with the top age group okay. males, and that gives you an indication that was a pretty stellar performance. And you know, if she can recreate something like that, she's yet to have a great Kona. Um, if she can recreate something like that, she's Did got I to read be she a was 40? Sorry? Did I read she was forty? 
I'm not going to comment on that because I don't know. And I'm going to look it up. Um, just just a side note, Lyndon Bedman's racing pro again this year. Is she? <laughs> Who? Um, Tasha Bedman. Is she qualified? No, that can't be right. Someone, maybe she's racing as an age grouper. Someone said to me the other day, see, Bedman's racing bloody Kona again. Mm. And I'm like, really? Because she's 51 now. Yeah, I haven't seen her name on the pro list at no, all. She, so. You're right, she can't have qualified. Yeah. She must be racing as an age grouper. Um, okay, I'll look up Corrine's age, yes. and we can then talk about Mount Tremblant. Yeah, so I did watch quite a lot of the Mont Tremblant coverage uh, in terms of the run. Um, I, when I tuned in, it was the guys were off the bike and the females were just towards the end of the bike, so it was really good timing for New Zealand. Just had the, the laptop plugging away, were Monday morning sort of working away, and what was great about it, it was there was the intrigue there that you didn't know what was going to happen on both the males and the females side of racing. So I clicked it on and I saw race leader Cody Beals and I thought, that's pretty bloody impressive. If you remember him, we had him on the show a little while ago. Yeah. He was the 70.3 athlete who was, you know, not first tier, but, but you know, podium him in, in, at races and sort of explaining how he made it work as an as a, uh, a pro athlete financially and he, he blogs about that as well and he was leading I thought impressive where the hell's Lionel Sanders uh, and Lionel Sanders was sitting in second place but he took off out of the run and you're thinking oh he's going to run him down he'll smoke him um, but he didn't Lionel Sanders had problems uh, he had GI problems it sounded like he wasn't feeling great all day uh, so he didn't end up making it to the to, to the win he ended up they, had, they were filming him and he had to have a toilet stop but he had to have a toilet stop when you got those one piece tops on uh, and then he was walking up a hill and just uh, just struggling his way through but he made it and uh, still finished in second place but not the performance he was looking for so you kind of wonder is it a good thing or a bad thing having a performance like that pre-Kona? I'm kind of thinking maybe it's a good thing for him because he's been so invincible this season that having something like that kicking his ass a little bit going, jeepers, I, I can't take things for granted here. Do you want to have a hard race this close to Kona? Well, he did it last year. So. Yeah, I know, but still. <clears throat> he didn't win last year, did he? Well, he didn't race that. The thing is, by not being able to push... Yeah, it was a really hard race mentally for him to get through, but because he wasn't pounding he wasn't that himself, run, he? he on a muscular level probably wasn't hurting himself as much as what he would if he'd really killed it on the run. Because how many of the you know how many of the contenders are doing a hard race now? Well, none. But he did the same last year and it went know, pretty bloody well. He didn't win. Well, it was very very close. Didn't win. So <laughs> he had a very good performance. Last year was his best chance to do it. I agree. Yeah. So, so Cody Beals took it out uh, with a 52-minute swim. This, remember, this is on debut as well. His first ever Ironman, winning on debut and beating Lionel Sanders. That's pretty cool. That is pretty he cool. He swam 52. And dominating. Well, not quite do, do, do domination, but a good 15-minute win. Mm. Uh, so he swam 52, rode 4.24, which I believe was a, a course record. Uh, and then he rode a two, ran a 2.49 for an 8 hours and 10.36, which was a course record by I think it was about 6 minutes or so. Very impressive on debut. Just looked good on the run. Uh, you know, he looked like he's got really long limbs uh, and a shorter torso. So he looked... I don't know how tall he was, but it, he looked like a tall runner, if you okay, know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, but looked, just held it together all the way on the run. Didn't look like he was slowing down at all. Uh, Lionel Sanders was second, uh, 14 minutes back. And Matt Russell came through on the run to finish in third place. Uh, a couple of comments they did post-race, because we, we never hear this stuff in press releases, and that's no. what fires me up. Cody Beals, was, he's just a pretty, pretty understated guy. Just He's kind of like a Jordan Rapper sort of dude, yep. you know, quite analytical and likes, quite humble. Likes to geek out. Um, um, but comes across as a really nice guy. Uh, he's saying 
yeah, Kona's on the radar, but maybe in two to three years' time, wants to sort of learn his trade first over the iron distance. Lionel Sanders was very gracious in defeat. Um, you know, he could have easily just first things that popped out of his mouth could have been, yeah, I had GI distress, felt like rubbish, but his first comments were praising Cody Beals and praising Matt, Matt Russell um, rather than bitching and moaning about his own performance. So nice. I thought that was, was classy. He's uh, a class actor, isn't he? Oh, he's great. Yeah. And then Matt Russell uh, ended up in third place and he was really saying that still dealing with a lot of pain, both emotionally and physically. So when he's running, you know, he's actually hurting um, from his accident last year. So still battling. Wow. What's going to be interesting, uh, and again, we'll talk about this on the KPR, whether he makes it to Kona. When I did a quick count last night and, and this is if if no if there is no roll down I counted that Tim Don would get the 10th slot and Matt Russell would miss out by one but I'm pretty sure it'll roll um, one or two places you would think yeah you would think yeah now the females race was also very interesting uh, because coming off the bike not surprisingly you had Lauren Brandon in the lead she's an amazing swimmer uh, and usually pretty solid on the bike as well um, but, and then Meredith Kessler was in second, and then you had Liz Blatchford there, so it was always between those three. Lauren Brandon, running looked a little bit better. She was holding it kind of steady, but Meredith Kessler smoked the transition and just took off like you wouldn't believe. She was running, looked really, really good and really fast, and looking like she was putting quite a bit of effort in. Uh, and you didn't see Liz Blatchford until, <laughs> until just before the finish. As it turned out, Lauren Brandon... <coughs> Held really strong on the run, but Meredith Kessler did catch her at about halfway uh, and didn't pull away too quickly. And then what happened with the Mont Tremblant course, there was quite a big, uh, I've got to say that the Ironman Live are doing a really good job with their coverage, um, but there was quite a bit of the course where they couldn't cover because of reception, you know, they're in the okay, mountains. Yep. So there was this big period in the females race that you didn't get the coverage and you didn't really know what was going on. And all of a sudden, um, Meredith Kessler's blown up. Uh, oh, really? Liz Blatchford is in the lead and Lauren Brandon uh, manages to catch and repass Meredith Kessler. So that's the order that it finished. Liz Blatchford first, Lauren Brandon second and Meredith Kessler third. None of them had very impressive run splits, although Liz Blatchford 3.13, not too bad. But in terms of overall time, she went 9.16 uh, to Lauren Brandon's 9.18. It was very close. And then Meredith Kessler in 923 and again comparing that to the males times and also to the age group male times not that fast you know they're over an hour behind the um the first male pro and there was a lot of age groupers that were in front of them as well um although interesting if you took away cody bills because <laughs> most of the male pre pros finished around the 825 whereas bills was close to 18 wasn't he so um you know, maybe it wasn't that slow. One one thing that's interesting, going back to just going back to the age of Corinne, Corinne Abraham, Abraham, she is 40. There you go. Yeah, so she is 40. Um, born in 77, I think, on November the 2nd. Uh, you just made some comments on the Facebook feed. You said 4,000 people watching live. I actually went on there this morning uh, and it had over a million views. Oh, now, really? what's a view? That's the interesting thing. Is it just someone jumping on for a second or is it someone watching for a long time? But, yeah. you know, they're putting the coverage up. The good thing about Facebook Live, it stays up there, so it's there if you want to go back and watch it later. And while they may not get a huge amount of live coverage, it seems that after the fact, these things are getting a lot of watches. Mm. You know, sure, maybe you know, even if you said half of those views are just a quick look, mm. a million views is a lot of views. It is. Yeah. I've got to, I've, I've got to give some love to the first age group male in a second because it was on the app before. Now the app's decided not to work on me. Uh, so. 
Okay, well, put, you see, you see, okay I'll, I'll make your comments. Facebook has got good work building in the interviews, casually inserting um, them into the coverage. We're good to get some more footage from the front uh, than from behind. They do a lot of filming um, from directly behind the person that they're following, and I'd much rather see the facial expressions of someone just than... Uh, but is that a drafting thing? Uh, I, I guess as part of that, that might yeah, be it, um, yeah. but it would, would be preferable to see them from the front, in my yeah. opinion. The main challenge is there's only two cameras, but I, we can kind of let them off the hook for that, aren't we? You know, it sounds like, based on your experience, I haven't watched a lot of them yet, but it, they're doing a pretty good job with the resources they have. Uh, yeah, they are. And well, uh, I, I'm so impressed with... Um, with uh, Lieto and Greg Welsh, that they're able to continuously talk for eight okay. to nine hours. It yeah. is bloody hard. I yeah. mean, yeah, well done to them. Uh, just one other comment here that you wrote down. Uh, the lead biker is now positioned behind the runner. That's what, uh, they made one comment on that with the females race, and I know people have bitched and moaned pros about that in the past, mm. and it seemed that they were positioning the lead cyclist behind the runner rather than in front, which is kind of as, as fair, but it's also nice to have for the crowd to see the lead cyclist if they were 50 metres in front, uh, so they know when the runner's coming through. Uh, yeah, the, the, yeah, you just don't want it to be right in front, so there's a draft advantage, do you? But if no. it was 15 metres, that's not a problem. So Cedric Boyley, uh, who was the fastest male age grouper overall, did 8 hours 31.26. I thought he went one. 8.31 is an age grouper. Yeah. And Tim Don, I mean, and Sanders did 8.25. Yeah. I well, know no, Sanders no. didn't have the greatest day, but. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and so he was, he was, did a dojo domination overall. He was, next fastest was 8.58. Nice. Uh, and in his age group, I think he was just about an hour in front. That's a Bruce Lee domination, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. That's what we came up for, Bruce Lee. That's impressive. It's a very fast time. Yeah, you've got to weekend. go, hopefully at Kids Racing Pro pretty soon. What age group was it? Well, no, I think he was, uh, I'll pull it up now. Uh, I don't think it was one of the younger age groups. Oh, so it was an older age group. Uh, it's really not that easy to tell, Bevan, to be honest. That's, okay, so we can give him a bit of love to Iron Man today. But, he's oh, but I'm pretty, my, my computer skills are sometimes No, because lacking. I tried to find the results for Copenhagen. And tried to get no, he's 35 sworn. to 39. Mm, so well, you, if you get an eight time, you can race pro. You can. You know, if you're, you're doing 835, <laughs> you can make some money in some racing. Yeah. You know, like 835 probably will go top five as a pro. Uh, I think it was somewhere about that. Yep. So yeah. Fifth, sixth, something like that. Impressive stuff. Okay, John. So the good news is the end of the KPR has come and we now pretty much know, it's not, although not 100% confirmed, but we have a good idea of who's going to be racing at Kona, both the female and the male's field, and some interesting things to look at here, John. Yes, yeah, so uh, Lucy Gossage we know is probably not going. Liz Blatchford's put herself up to 21st overall, so she'll be going. Von Van Vlerken we know is probably not. Lisa Roberts, Emma Pallant is now, and she was already on the list. Um, Meredith Kessler should uh, get in okay, as should Lauren Brandon. Beyond that, then it becomes a bit of a bit of a lottery. Angela Neath, who's been doing lots of racing, might scrape in with a roll down, potentially. Um, but John, on this website, they've got the queues next to it. So yeah, but those are the people that took their original spots from the first round oh, okay. and so now there is a seven remaining slots for the okay. females uh, and ten remaining slots for the males uh, on the I've got, again got to give Ironman some credit here they update this very rapidly it was updated you know Ironman uh, Montremblanc was yesterday and it was updated later on that day so uh, whoever's got that job praise to you praise to you praise to you when uh, and as I said, I counted roughly counted yesterday Tim Don, and I'm pretty sure he was like the tenth, eighth, ninth, or tenth or eleventh place. There's definitely a few guys above him that aren't racing, such as Ben Canute, because he hasn't done an Ironman. So Tim Trenzo? Don, Trenzo might be out. 
Yeah, but he's already taken a spot. So. Yeah, but if it withdraws, do they give it to someone else? Don't know about that. It's an interesting discussion, isn't it? Yeah. Because there's a high chance he won't be there. And you'd think you'd go to, to W or Iron Man and say, look, I'm not going to be there. Must give it to someone else. Potentially. Now, obviously, he's probably still hoping to get there. Yeah. And that might be a bit late in the piece. But So it's interesting we discussed Tim Don and Matt Russell last week. They're separated by 15 points, which is probably less than a place. Uh, I'd say it almost definitely be less than a place at most races. So if Tim Don gets in and Matt Russell doesn't, doesn't that would be unfortunate, but they're both going to be right on that bubble. I think they'll get in. Yeah. It's interesting when you look at the female and the men's because in the females, there's quite a few who didn't, haven't got the qualification next to them. Yeah. You know, whereas in the men, at least early on, all the, all the top 35 basically took it straight away. Mm. You know, so it's interesting, isn't it? Um... Any shockers? Any surprises? No, I think it's interesting with a few, a few of those people that have elevated themselves recently, like Corinne Abraham, uh, also the Tim Don case. So I think there's been more interest in it this year. Often it's those third-tier athletes that are just scraping in at the end, whereas this year there has actually been a little bit of interest about people that have had injuries, sickness, whatever, not being able to, to make it. It's interesting that Freddie Van Leer is 51 in points. Yeah, he must have done, uh, must have done some other race races. Year, but you, you know, he you did uh, Alp Duez, I know that. And uh, I'm not sure what else he's been doing. Callum Millwood, he's in there. Callum Millwood got in, yep. Okay, so there. So now we know kind of, when do they actually confirm? It must not be sure how, it'll be in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, so it'll be good to kind of see their final, the final results of who's going to be there. We had another result over the weekend, John. Peasant man, and it wasn't a man who took it out. It was not. So I, this is the first time I've ever seen this in a non-pro setting. Uh, we had a female take out the Peasant Man Iron Distance race, and and she did dominate the dojo, I can confirm. Uh, Kersia Merchant from Liverpool, not Liverpool, UK, Liverpool, New York, took it out in 10 hours and 13 minutes, ahead of Corey Fleming, who was the first male, and she won by 21 minutes. Nice work. Nice work. That's awesome. Small fit. She gets a, she gets a special I Am Talker World. She, she is the person of the week. Yeah, there was 20, 26 doing the full, and uh, she took it out. Nice work indeed. Uh, other races from, just any other races worth of note? Oh, very quickly, a few uh, 70.3s. We had uh, in Don Log here, and uh, that's probably wrongly pronounced, in Ireland. Elliot Smales took that out from GBR, beating out Andy Potts and good old Brian McChrystal, favourite from uh, from Rote. Emma Palant took out the females race ahead of Tina Dickers over in Indonesia at the Bintan 70.3. Tim Reid beat out uh, Kiwi and Christchurch lad Mike Phillips by just under two minutes, and Beth McKenzie took out the females race. Coming up this weekend, we've got Ironman Vici, and uh, just it's age group only race it says it sold out last year they had about 1500 athletes but they did have a pro race last year with 2000 athletes in it so they're doing the pro race again I believe so and I, and I wonder if that's a way forward for the for these non-pro iron distance races to ensure they get some media coverage and local pros and not local pros but pros there by having an age group iron man and a 70.3 pro race probably not quite quite a nice compromise I think and last year, so you're saying last year there's three and a half thousand people racing, mm. so it's a good profit day for them. Yeah, exactly. You know, now, yeah, yeah. Are you happy with that? Uh, I, I don't think there should be any, there definitely shouldn't be any more pro, I think there probably should be less pro Ironman races, but then I have sympathy for those non-pro Ironman races when they're not going to have the, the stars and stuff, yeah. so I think it's a good compromise. I actually think, as you say, this is something we're going to see a lot of moving forward, because mm. if it proves to be a good model, because the problem is, how can you get so many people out on the course? Whereas if you start the Ironman off, 
start the half at nine or two or three hours later, it's going to work pretty well as in the volume of people on the course. <laughs> the run would be a bit of a disaster maybe. Yeah, but um, Freddie Van Leer won it last year, so I, I, I can see both sides of the story, you know. Mm. More opportunity for people to make money. Uh, any other races on 226? Uh, there are a couple other races on this weekend. There is the big man in the, the Czech Republic, the hard the hard man in Ireland, <laughs> and the nap man in the Irish, like Germany. The hard man. So we've got the big man, the hard man, the napping man, and then we've got triathlon Estonia in uh, Tallinn. I'm just going onto YouTube right now, John, because I know you've got to do the John's ITU update, and I'm just looking at Lusanne and uh, Nicholas Spirig strikes again. She does indeed, and this is important because the world champs are going to be in Lausanne next year. So age groupers, if you want a good, challenging, honest race, get, get yourself uh, selected for next year because the Lausanne course is a great one. Uh, Nicola Spurig, she's back, and she's back in a big way, winning again, uh, beating off Taylor Nib and Gustav Idian. The Norwegians are back. They, they started the year on fire, and then they've uh, petered away a little bit, except for Christian Blumenfeld. Uh, but they're back now with Gustav Edian, Edian beating out Jonathan Brownlee and Christian Blumenfeld in third. So this was a World Cup as opposed to the World Championship Series, so it's the next sort of rung down. But we do have the next round of the Championship Series this weekend in Montreal. Uh, you've got all the usual contenders except for Brownlee on the male side on the female side uh, you haven't got Flora Duffy or Cassandra Bogrand so a bit of a bit more of an open course the Montreal course not so interesting from memory last year um, likely just to come down to the run unless you can get a very well organized uh, bike group away quite quite a few long straights and not the most exciting to watch but you never know what's interesting John is why do the the top guys do the World Cup um, well potentially <coughs> they want another good quality race don't want to go across the glo- globe to <coughs> right he's, he's in my heart take on me here team but don't worry I'll look after him it's a glass of water next to you mate just have a drink you'll be fine um, um, yeah. you know probably possibly don't want to go across to Canada all the way to race and then they've got to come down to um, Australia so that's probably one reason Second reason, uh, they might be over there anyway third reason, world Four. champs are on that course next year so um to check that out, and and it's also for that particular race, it's a cool race. Um, it's good really interesting, isn't it? Because you think of sporting leagues, there's not many sporting leagues where someone will step down to the next level hmm. just purely, you know, to do a race. You know, it's quite unique in, in triathlon, I imagine. I agree. Yeah, so. uh, also, just a bit of local stuff. Andrea Hewitt's back in Christchurch, and she won the Canterbury Road Running Champs at the weekend and ran thirty-four thirty or something. Which Did on John that Newsom goes sub thirty-five. John Newsom did not attend. He attended, but he did not race because oh, he was sick. sick. Uh, but Andrew, at 34.30 on that course, it has about nine U-turns on it. Uh, it's pretty solid. I'd say if it was a, more of a straight line course, uh, she'd probably be closer to 34 flat. It's not bad. Well, she's not a bad athlete. Thanks, all right. She's, she's all right. She's pretty sharp. Uh, one question I have for you, John, is uh, course accuracy. So we put that up. I did get an email through from someone from Copenhagen saying it's pretty accurate in Copenhagen. Uh, only just. <laughs> um, the one course I have only got one response from was Ironman Montreux Blanc, and uh, that looked like it was uh, a little on the short side to me. Uh, so where is this damn post, Bevan? You go. I'm going to go to the email to me about the Here we go. Uh, Rob Aruda. Uh, I think we called him Speedy Gonzalez, I think. Yeah. He said at Mont Tremblant, he only recorded 109.7 miles on the bike and 26 
on the run, so run about right, but bike, that's quite short. Um, in terms of Copenhagen, most people said it was sort of within one to one and a half kilometres, so just acceptable, and within about 400, 300 to 400 metres, so again, just acceptable. But what's impressive is the, the athletes that were at uh, Kalmar, so Robert Sonnenberg, he did Kalmar, he got 3.84 k's in the swim, 181.5 on the bike and 42.2 on the run, uh, and also Martin Fredrickson got uh, slightly shorter on the swim, about 182 on the bike and 42.1 k's on the run, which makes Kareen Abraham's performance even more impressive because it's a bloody accurate course. If anything, a little bit over. Just a touch over. Yeah, so so well reasonably agreed. accurate, but maybe Montreal Blanc needs to... Uh, I, I, I'm not going to give races too much of a hard time, but the reason I want to keep highlighting this is, hey, I'm just interested to see how accurate courses are. But also, secondly, is when they're going on about world records, it really is a load of shit because the courses are different. Yeah. And when you're a couple of k's short on the bike, that's pretty significant. That's you know three to four minutes for the pros, or probably closer to three. Uh, and every... You know, every half kilometre short on the run, then that's a couple of minutes there as well. So it does add up. Doesn't make records hard. John, we hit uh, sponsor Ex- extreme endurance. This to, we're just going to go back to a dosage. We've got to, how much well, do you need to use? A couple of things is if you've never, if you if you're new to the show or if you never used extreme endurance before, I did have a question on this last night. Was uh, it is in tablet format? And how you take it is three tablets in the morning, three tablets at night. So it's not a powder or anything like that. So you need to be able to digest, uh, not digest, ingest uh, tablets okay. Something that I struggle with, but I'll go over my, my patented technique that I got from good old uh, Daddy, Dr. Daddy. Uh, For those Pete, who can't Pete, swallow a pill. Pete, uh, it's, I struggle sometimes. Uh, so if you want to get it, tablet form, three in the morning, three at night. Definitely, if you've got any build-up races, a lot of Christchurch athletes are building up for world champs, and I'm saying, get on it. You know, you've got plenty of time to build into it. Uh, we've got a build-up race, and uh, then you'll really notice a difference. It gives you 39% reduction in oxidative stress, lowers your CK levels by up to six times, and clinically proven to reduce lactic acid by 15 to 26% on their study. Uh, it's 46.95 USA uh, container, which gives you 180 tablets, and uh, use the promo code on that, IMTALK20, you get 20% off, and that works on the .co.uk and the EU website as well. Okay, John, we had a good discussion last week. We got lots of big feedback on it. The discussion was a really good one. It was basically, uh, this week we want to know what you feel is the biggest threat to iron distance racing in terms of maintaining athletes in the sport. And uh, I think it the week before we had an appalling discussion, but this week was, I've got an interesting discussion to have as well, but I know we've got to go on for this week, so one moving forward. Um John, you can start. Okay, good. Arnold Silikov. Uh, and, and, and I do want to go through quite a few of these because I thought there were some really, really good points. And some of them, you know, obviously a lot of people are going to say cost, but there were some other insightful comments. Arnold Silikov, uh, too many races with 2,000 plus participants, cancelled swims, shortened bike course, and organised drafting. Rant over. Okay, Nina, Nina Pope has got the dangers of cycling. It's getting more and more difficult to do training rides without experienced idiot drivers not paying attention or even worse, intentionally harassing cyclists. I know some cyclists carry a gun. Whoa, that's pretty that funny. is just <laughs> mental. Yeah, that is stupid. <laughs> um, we are so sheltered in New Zealand. It's just, although I have to say, one of our coaches... Carries a gun. Yeah, they shoot the athletes who are not running fast <laughs> enough. That's a good motivator. No, um, one of our coaches was riding to coaching the other night and got hit by a car. 
and end up in hospital. Like, oh, your safety, but I'm talking oh, carrying yeah, a gun. Yeah, yeah, carrying guns always. I've been a triathlete for 17 years, and it's getting much worse now with congestion and drivers that have no regard for anybody else. Totally get that one. Yep. This is this is my comment of the week, and this is from Brett. Wah, Chan. Uh, we He's can on fire. We, we, we know Brett. Week last week. He did. Yeah. Brett, you're on fire. Um, for me, it's not about the cost to the athletes. It's the support of the communities. It is harder and harder to find local governments who want to tie up their road systems for 17 hours or longer and have the support of the taxpayers and voters. Short-sighted. Narrow-minded, perhaps. See Pemberton for course changes at Ironman Canada as an example. The other one is volunteer fatigue. Too many events in some communities means it can be difficult to get the support you need to run an event. Totally agree with you on those ones, Brent. Very cool. good points. Yeah, yeah. Dilar's uh, Benson's. I never intended to be a one and done Ironman, but it was too so damn expensive in terms of entry fees and kit, and it got worse since that I could ever justify that kind of expense again. And that Ironman was relatively local, i.e., not flying. I've I don't have disposable income to fritter away irresponsibly like that. Additionally, while I am sure I could carve out an extra training time to do another one, hey, anything's possible. I relish my okay fitness stress reduction routine and my current just being there for my family. I know many former triathletes now will settle for keeping themselves just ticking over, maybe with the occasional marathon, ultra or supportive ride for fun. Like them, I am is off my radar. So he's kind of saying, obviously cost, and that's one we've got, but actually the lifestyle is not really conducive. Mm-hmm. Joseph Mulhall, uh, this I thought this is you can look at this one two ways. Anything that undermines the general public's view that Ironman is the ultimate in endurance sport, that's what draws them in. Telling people it's easy and anyone can do it might be true, but if they believed, you'd, then they'd stop coming. Other challenge type events, you know, not talking challenge triathlon, challenging events like Spartan yeah. and all that sort of stuff, probably take entrance away from Ironman, CrossFit, obstacle courses, etc. So I guess you could look at that at two ways, you know, by making Ironman seem not as hard, then you're going to perhaps draw people in, but then also it's going to turn some people off because they might not think that's the ultimate challenge. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, that's, 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 a really, so that's a really interesting angle, isn't look at it? Because two ways. In, in, in its day, Ironman was the ultimate challenge, wasn't it? Mm. Whereas I think a lot of people would think CrossFit is now, mm. and, or at least Joe Public. Mm. Um, it's not as exclusive as it used to be. No, and if anything, it, the Ironman has sold themselves as that kind of anyone can do it, mm. um, which maybe diminishes it. I'm not quite sure. But you'd have to say on the face of it, it's probably been more successful the less. There's a shitload more people doing it than there used to be. Oh, yeah, it's been a good strategy because mm. there is that because it's that thing of maybe I could. And, mm. you know, and then you kind of do it and what you get from it. John Damani has got better coverage of races would definitely help. Triathlon is an inclusive sport. Uh, it's, uh, athletes from over 18 to over 80 regular race. Many media, uh, ma- sorry, media mainly covers the elite side of the sport and not the 99.9 of everyday athletes having a go. To bring more people into the sport, you have to demonstrate that inclusiveness. Well, that's interesting because if you look at the the world championship coverage it's actually 5% pros and mm. it's all stories isn't it so i think i think again if we just take ironman i think they're doing a pretty good job on that front mm. paul doherty um, good old pod uh, training time needed and costs are key reasons a huge amount of guys i know have stopped ironman crit racing seems to be growing with this one i think that's a stage of life thing and and it, because I've been around the sport a long, long time and you see so many people come and go. And it's not just been in the recent era, but I think you know, obviously once you go into the stage of life where having kids, you see a huge drop off in people. So I think people like Pod um, 
and people of his era, my era, you'll see them start to come back maybe later on. Um, so sort of maybe through their mid-30s and, and early 40s, they go away yep. and then they maybe come back later. Matt Treach has got, um, remember how big rollerblading was? Well, never it was that big. <laughs> Not in New Zealand. I did get some rollerblades and I was really bad at them. Uh, triathlon is rollerblading for a certain generation. So as they drop out, cost, time, injuries, new families, there will be less people picking it up precisely because it was too big and it's no longer as aspirational or as maverick as it was. It's an interesting point. Maybe we should bring rollerblading in time. We should. Oh, the last one I'll do is uh, Volker Voigt, a basic rule enforcement and safety. It's such a demotivation to see people constantly drafting in big races. Second, I had a couple of near misses with cars, bikes and pedestrians on the bike course um, over in, uh, in Maastricht. Organisers have to be responsible for safety. Um, I kind of... I get what you're saying there, Volker, but it's bloody hard to for, for an iron distance race to have 100% compliance by people reversing out of their driveways, uh, just random people that are just trying Health to be a pain in the really ass. Hard. Very, like we, very we, hard. We had, we had one of our runners got hit by a cyclist a few weeks ago, and we've got a really great health and safety record. And um, and nowadays in New Zealand, you've got to have a really you know mm. they've got to, it's, the laws have changed, so it's really thorough. And and Joe puts a lot of effort into it, and she's really stressed. And it was just one of the, it was just a freak accident, you know. Yeah. Now also Hagley Park's really poorly designed right now because they have mm. the cycle lane which people just shoot down. Mm. But we do our briefings and everything. But sometimes this shit happens, and it's horrible. And so I think when you're racing, you've always got to assume that the roads are open and there could be potentially traffic. The drafting is a real issue because then that is a that's a hazard in terms of. Slight, I know it is. It is in your control. You don't draft, and you won't go up someone's jacksey. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> uh, I'll finish with Trevor. So he's got, I am now his big business, and like most business sporting codes, they have become uh, as a bit of a threat to themselves. They need to go back to being about the athletes and not about the dollars. Okay, John, what's your thoughts? Um, well, the reason that I brought this up is uh, is swim venues. I think is a massive, massive problem. Uh, we've yeah, we've definitely seen in the last moment that one of the big trends is cancellation of swims like yeah. I remember back in was it, late 2000s they had that one I'm in New Zealand that was like mm. the first time ever a swim had been cancelled and in the last few years we're seeing a lot of swim venues have problems through through water quality primarily so and even safety yeah so I think that's a real real big big challenge going forward is uh, the water around the world it's not going to get any better uh, and so having venues where you can safely swim and then also that are suitable for biking and running, I think is a massive, massive problem going forward. Uh, so I, th- I see that as a major one. And then I think Brent Chan's one is, is also fantastic about um, just having the, the manpower and the venues to actually run events. Cost, yeah, it sucks. But look, um, there's plenty of options out there in most communities in terms of picking and choosing and trying to go for slightly more affordable ones and it might just mean people race a little less frequently um so yeah for me it's more about the venues and the support to run them in the communities than a lot of the other things uh, that have been listed you know such as rule enforcement um etc i'm I'm kind of curious i'd love to see someone like thorsten do some work on this because I'd love to see, you, you know, when you when you look at worlds, you kind of look at trends, don't you? And if we look at Ironman from the 90s to the 2000s, there's been a massive amount of growth, you know, like look at how many races there are, look how many people are doing the sport. So in some ways you're saying, well, it's kind of, we are in a boom time. Ah, oh, we're past the boom to a degree. To, to a degree, but, but, but the sport is massive, doing really, really well. Yeah, it really Really is. well. But that point before is about saying, 
like I w- I'd love to see the trend of young people coming into the sport. Mm-hmm. You know, the typical Ironman person starting the sport, I wonder what that age has traditionally been and what's happening in the younger person because that's really interesting. You know, like Pod's point about, you know, the certain age in life, you just don't have time for Ironman. Yeah. And, and that's understandable. But, you know, for me, the late 20s was when Ironman became really appealing to me and I wasn't really a triathlete. Well, I wasn't a triathlete at all before yeah. that. But I'm kind of curious to see if the numbers of the people around the late 20s, is that dropping off? Because... I've got an idea on this. I've, I've got it covered. Well, okay. Well, well, one of the things that's really interesting in the fitness industry is the trend towards shorter workouts. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone in the industry is going towards 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, it's very, very popular. There are still hour workouts out there. But if we went back seven years ago, everything was an hour. Mm-hmm. Now everything's 30 minutes and maybe even shorter. And so then that's not just classes, that's personal training, that's everything. And it's because basically people are time poor and the bang for the buck is a lot less. And so um, I'm kind of curious to see to me, the biggest threats are the time for life mm-hmm. um, and also attention span life. Like if we look at the next generation, one of the concerns that we, we often hear about, and I, I've done no research on this, but you often hear about, you know, some of the sports, that are, some of the big sports are really struggling with because their sports are so long. Mm-hmm. And, and in an Instagram, Snapchat world. I think it's probably more on a spectating level though, isn't it? Yeah, it totally is. Mm-hmm. But if you're, if you're kind of brought up in a world where everything's short attention span, mm-hmm. The idea of going for a five-hour bike ride might not be that appealing, yep. Yep. you know. So I don't know. I just think you know, if we are thinking of threats of the future, if this generation who is kind of a bit more of an instant gratification, and who knows if that's a bad thing or not, because you know people always worry about the next generation. But the kids that I know who are coming up, they're pretty great kids and they're pretty mm-hmm. bloody intelligent. And you're going to think if these kids are the next generation, I actually feel pretty safe moving forward. But um, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of curious to see if a sport like this would appeal in 10 years from now, 15 years from now, if that generation, this would be a, an appealing and that could be a threat to the sport. Uh, and I do think the, 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 it's a, there's so many more options out there now, mm. you know, for sporting endeavours. Um, <laughs> and, and people seem to also be really fascinated in, we'll call it gimmicky, but the gimmicky kind mm. of events. And so does it lead to Ironman? Or does it just the, the gimmicky event will always kind of be where a certain level of the market sits? So, but you know, if we look at what's happening right now, take it. Sometimes you just need to take a step back and stop bitching and moaning about things and go, shit. There's a lot of people doing the sport, and look really where are. it's look where it's come from. Yeah, but um, we are looking at threats, and I think the other threats mm. are things like health and safety. Mm-hmm. You know, like to put on a race in New Zealand now. Gives race organisers a bit of slack because I organise races and it oh no, but that's what I know, I know, but people out there, you know, it's, we go, I'm man, um, Canada. What the hell are you doing putting on a three lap bike course? I'd say they probably don't really want to do that, yeah. uh, but sometimes your hand is forced. So sometimes give people a bit of slack. And, and also the downfall if we talk about cost of sport. Now let's be honest, I'm man, are doing very well making money, although we don't really know, but we imagine they are. Um, but that's one of the problems of health and safety. Putting on a race isn't cheap now, oh, is it? Yeah. You know, if you like, if, John, if you're going to put on a local triathlon, what are you going to pay for just council fees and crap like that? Oh, well, you've got several thousand dollars before you even get off the ground. Yeah. Several thousand just in traffic management. If, if it's a triathlon, then you're probably more looking at like $5,000. This is New Zealand yeah. in terms of traffic management, water safety and all that sort of stuff. And so it's you get things off the ground. You know, and, and so Joe Public, you know, like we've, we talk about how the greedy corporations... But it's really, you know, 15, 20 years ago, John could put on a triathlon 
for a few hundred dollars. Yeah, you pay the surf club 200 bucks to do the surf patrol. You get marshals. They, they have cones and stuff out there, but you don't have to have a traffic management plan. No. That's why entry fees have to go up. Yeah, so there's there's many factors. To me, the real threat ultimately is what, what will it appeal to the next generation? Mm. Mm. You've got an idea. Oh, in terms of uh, numbers and stuff like that, I'll get somebody on to interview about that. Okay. This week, um, it's going to be more of a poll than... Uh, well, well, poll and discussion. Poll and discussion. Yeah. Um, so Bevan brought this up last week. What do you think is more important, a gold medal at the Olympics or to win Kona? Well, what I might do in the poll is I'll go Olympic gold medal, win Kona, 70.3 ITU championship. So I'll name the, kind of the, the five key yep. triathlon events and hopefully you can even rank them. Or okay. you just put which one you feel is the most important. Uh, we just want to see where you feel the pres- most prestigious triathlon event is in mm. the world. So Rob Cummins sent that, uh, also suggested that. So I'll see you on Facebook if I can do a poll and a discussion so you can put your thoughts around why you have your answer. Okay, John, let's put some music on. Should we, have we got time for Age Group of the Week? I, I, wanna, I, I do love our Age Group of the Week and highlight it, but we're going to be cranking through the okay, time we'll on today. We'll save you. Okay, we're saving you next week. We're not ignoring you, we're, we're saving you. We've got an interview. We've got a great interview, actually, with Dr. Alan Lin. Uh, he is basically a brainiac. He starts uh, founder of Starch Nutrition. and uh, Scratch Nutrition. Oh, sorry, Scratch Nutrition. Um, and he Just is... Just rip into it, Bevan. Had some, had some music, though. Had, had yeah, some music. music on for an interview. Yeah, you can. Here he is. Okay, guys, uh, we have got some uh, someone on today who a lot of you will have heard of before. He's fairly well regarded in triathlon circles and cycling circles in terms of his knowledge on both exercise, physiology, and also nutrition. His name's uh, Dr. Alan Lim. He's worked on the Tour de France over the years with several different teams uh, helping with nutrition and I think also exercise physiology. He's the founder of Scratch Nutrition and he's the author of the Feed Zone books, Feed Zone Portables and also feed the Feed Zone cookbook. So, Alan, welcome along to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Um, how much these time these days do you actually spend on exercise physiology as opposed to uh, you know focusing a lot more on nutrition? I, I think that they're one and the same, right? Exercise physiology is in large part about metabolism and, you know, f- having appropriate fuel sources for that through, you know, food is kind of one and the same. So I don't tend to make a distinction between nutrition and exercise fizz or training. It's all about helping athletes become better. Nice. And in terms of these cookbooks, you know, there's obviously lots of cookbooks out there. When you came out with them, um, what was your sort of objective and, and how are they different to say just a standard cookbook for athletes that people might find on Amazon? Yeah, well, you know, I think my bigger picture objective was just to help people become better. But my smaller objective was to um, give the athletes I worked with a resource. Um, I was constantly getting pestered uh, recipes that we would make for the athletes when we were on the road at big Grand Tour events and races, etc. And so this was an opportunity to codify this for the athletes, even as a practitioner you know, if you're trying to help an athlete become better, they're going to need some practical life skills to execute that. So it's one thing to tell them, hey, eat more carbohydrate or, you know, watch your diet. It's another thing to give them a book of recipes. And so the idea behind the book was really to 
um, codify um, the experience that I had on the pro cycling tour, taking care of athletes, but also to make uh, it really, really practical because at the end of the day, it's not just about the science, it's about the practice and it's about the execution. And one thing that I really saw missing when I worked with especially very young athletes was that they were missing the basic life skills to take care of themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if the, our cookbook is any different from any other cookbook out there, except for the fact that I was writing it for a very specific audience, a very specific audience of a uh, younger endurance athlete who didn't have a lot of skill set, who just needed very simple, practical meals that tasted great that they could use to fuel better activity. So just just explain. You have got a couple here. So we've got them actually sitting in front of us. We've got the pretty good the free the feed zone cookbook, which is as you said is you know some really nice, practical, fairly easy and quite quick recipes. But you've also got the portables one. With the portables book, is that a lot more of the sort of stuff that you're actually feeding Tour de France riders on a daily basis? That's you know a bit more palatable than just shoving bloody gels and and um, bars down them all day. Or what sort of the maybe maybe. Explain the portable one a little bit more. Yeah, well, in the original Feed Zone cookbook, we had you know covered pre-ride food, breakfast. We covered ride food, which was a portable section, recovery food, dinner, and we got a lot of attention for having a section of that first cookbook that was about portables or about you know do your own, make your own energy bars. And so we wanted to expand that because we certainly make a whole lot of different types of foods for athletes when they're on the bicycle. And I wanted to give a more complete dissertation about why real food could be a practical alternative to high carbohydrate gels or solutions. Mm. Um, so that was the objective of that book. I think that the bottom line is that uh, fueling any person in any context is about variety and about great taste. And I was definitely seeing that that was missing in the endurance world, right? That people were fixated on you know basic products like chews and bars and uh, high carbohydrate gels and had not, or maybe had forgotten that they could, you know, take the leftovers from dinner the night before and that that could also be a viable, um, fuel source. And so if anything, portables wasn't just about the recipes, um, but it was also about giving people permission to enjoy themselves when they're out there doing very, very hard events. Take us inside a little bit what it's like on the Tour de France in terms of how you fuel the athletes on a day-to-day basis because obviously their effort is going to vary significantly across the day you know Um, some days it might be easier for the first two-thirds of the race and then all out at the end other days it might be all go from the get-go so how do you actually fuel those athletes sort of pre, during, and post, and, and yeah, it's, I think it's a, give us a bit of insight into what that world's like, because it's very hard to tell from the outside. Yeah, the, the real insight there is having great, great staff. The insight there is that people make this happen, and so it starts with an incredible chef. Um, in my role, I'm simply an advisor. I'm simply someone who, you know, helps to create the menus or give insight about what the athletes need or even helps with the logistics of how the, the, the food needs to be timed. But the chefs and the staff, um, you know, the sous chef, they're the real heroes here because they go through a daily grind of not only having to wake up, you know, super early in the morning before everyone else starts to, to get the food ready, but they're also, you know, cleaning, keeping and, 
you know, just working their tails off all day long to execute it. Um, so I think a lot of it, first and foremost, it starts with a chef that is, uh, you know, kind of geared in a way where, where they have a natural sense of hospitality, a natural sense of nurturing, right? Because the, 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 the food that you get from that person um, ends up becoming so grounding to the rest of the team. And if that chef gets upset or gets moody or is having a bad day, then I'll tell you this much, the whole team suffers, right? Mm. So it's about starting with somebody who is there to really take care of the riders and really wants to take care of the riders. That is a natural, natural pleaser, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, number two, uh, there's this infrastructure that, that has to exist when you're mobile or on the road. Uh, that infrastructure used to be about you know taking over a hotel kitchen, but now the teams have realized that it, it's just too difficult to do that, and so most of them have their own food trucks or their own you know kind of sprinter vans or big rigs with built-in kitchens where they can do all of the work they need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so having that infrastructure is really vital. You have a a rolling or a mobile kitchen. Um, from there, it's you know following the lead of the athletes, but also uh, being informed by some science. So depending upon the time of the day, the food structure can change quite a bit. Uh, the Tour de France is fairly easy compared to many ultra-endurance events in so much that most race days start at 12 o'clock. Mm. So there's not this need for uh, athletes to eat super early. They can sleep in. They can sleep in until 8 or 9 o'clock, and they can have breakfast uh, by eight or nine with plenty of time to digest. Right. And so what tends to happen is in the morning, these guys are eating, uh, fairly simple foods, you know, rice, eggs, things with an ample amount of carbohydrate, a little bit of protein, not so much fiber. Um, you know, some guys still like to eat oats, um, but something that is substantial and fills their stomach and allows them to use their stomach as a reservoir for food. Um, they'll snack on the bus, uh, they have different little little items that kind of the chefs pack up on the bus for, uh, to go, and then during the race itself, you know, it's managed with a combination of a lot of real food portables, uh, whether they be rice cakes, which is you know quite popular across the peloton, to you know little pastries, fruit, energy bars, uh, some gels uh, late in the race, um, you know, energy chews. Um, and of course, you know, sports drinks with, uh, an ample amount of salt and electrolytes. Um, from there it's recovery food on the team bus. Uh, chefs typically repair, uh, prepare a actual meal, um, on the team bus. It can be everything from, you know, a simple pasta dish to a rice dish to, uh, potatoes, et cetera, with some protein, but the athletes also, uh, do use a recovery drink so that as soon as they get on the bus, they can start to get calories into their body and begin that recovery process. Um, you know, by the evening time, uh, they have a regular dinner. You know, portion sizes are obviously very large, and probably dinner is the one time where they can ingest, uh, you know, uh, an average um, amount of fiber or more fiber. Um, otherwise, you know, these guys get fueled primarily on uh, carbohydrate and simple sugars. Um, if that weren't the case, uh, given their energy expenditure and energy need, if you were to, um, you know, uh, uh, a diet that was too high in fiber, they'd produce so much fecal mass that they wouldn't be able to ride the next day. Mm. Um, <laughs> so there is some interesting there, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's, oh, sorry. Keep going. 
yeah, depending on a time trial day, et cetera, the, the food service a little differently. Uh, athletes, you know, they tend to like to time their meals so that they've got at least three hours to digest. Um, and we like to set things up so that they can, you know, eat immediately after they, they finish to, to get as much time to maximize glycogen resynthesis and recovery. What, what, what advice would you give to somebody who's doing like a big camp or a multi-day race, like an Ultraman or something like that? What kind of advice do they need to think about in regards to nutrition and fueling? In, in a triathlon sense, in terms yeah. of you know, individual time trialing for, you know, seven, eight, nine hours. Yeah, find find a lot of friends. Uh, <laughs> make sure that you have a great support staff. I think that uh, execution is everything, and all of the theoretical um, advice doesn't really um, help if you don't have a strong support staff. And I think this is one of the bigger issues with endurance sports and endurance events as a whole, especially the really, really long ones. And on a certain level, it's a very, very selfish endeavor, and you have to ask a lot of your friends and your family to get the proper support to be able to do well. Otherwise, you know, um, all the work in the world is not going to make up for the fact that you don't have a feed or that, you know, you're, you're, you don't have the logistics down to, to keep yourself fueled. Right. Um, so the logistical issues I think are probably more, uh, uh, of a problem than what you put, in those feed bags or what you have in those feed zones, right? Mm. Um, that being said, especially for the very, very long days, um, you know, I think that there has to be a balance between um, maybe some of the, I guess, prepackaged foods versus real food. Um, one example that I give to people in terms of trying to strike a proper balance is that if you were to sit on the couch for nine hours uh, and just, you know, marathon over a television series, you wouldn't be squeezing a bunch of, you know, gels and energy bars into your mouth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even sitting on your ass, I think it's a good sense that uh, having some real food might actually be good for them, right? Mm-hmm. And so I would say, first and foremost, don't ignore the fact that um, you're out there for an incredibly long day and that as just a human being, you need to get food in your stomach, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that the stomach itself is designed to be a reservoir for fuel that naturally um, and very efficiently can digest foods and that that food, that stomach can be uh, a gatekeeper to allow consistent uh, fuel to trickle into the small intestine. So a little bit about digestion. You know, digestion begins when we start to chew food. That food then goes into the stomach. That stomach then processes it, turns it into a liquid chyme, which then goes through the pyloric sphincter into the small intestine. And it's in the small intestine where our food stuff's absorbed into the body. Sports nutrition as a whole has always, I think, tried to remove the stomach as a bottleneck to this process. But in doing irony is that it ends up creating a, a secondary set of problems, which is that if you flood the small intestine with too much carbohydrate or too much foodstuffs at one time, you overreach the intestine's capacity to absorb food and you end up having a lot of GI distress. And so when you have a very high carbohydrate solutions and they're very easy to drink or eat and you take too much at one time, you really 
kind of set yourself up for a big traffic jam in the gut. And when that happens, it can be very hard to recover from. So for me, it's about the consistency of pacing calories into the body. It's not ever about trying to overwhelm the body at one given time, right? Mm. Consistent traffic flow is everything, regardless of what it is you choose to eat or drink. I think that's uh, you're a broadcasting professional there, Alan, because you're going on to my, my next point. I, I recently watched a, a little clip you did, I think it was a few years ago, around uh, taking several different substances. I, I think one was a gel, one was one of your scratch uh, sports drink, I think it was, and one was a another high-carbohydrate drink. Can you maybe, and, and, and you had an egg uh, within, in there, which I think you'd, you'd placed previously in some other solution and you'd sort of shown the osmality of the of the the GI tract can you maybe talk us through that little experiment you did and in terms of um you know how how strong people have their drinks because I know some people mix their sports drinks really strong um, and maybe have one concentrated bottle when they're maybe going through a half Ironman instead of maybe mixing to the manufacturer's specifications so if you could sort of talk through that experiment and and what people need to watch out for in terms of the concentration of their drinks yeah yeah well the first caveat I'll say is that if you're not having any issues uh, then all good stay the course, right? Because we're all individuals and we're all different. But if you're peeing out of your butthole in the middle of an endurance event, well then, <laughs> it's a real issue and it needs to be fixed, right? Yeah. Because uh, that's not normal physiology. Um, so let's back up a little bit and let's talk about osmolarity or osmolality, um, which is effectively a way to measure the molecular concentration of a solution. So we all recognize that you can have different concentrations, right? And that when we think of a concentration, we're literally thinking about how much of something is in a fluid or solution. Well, you normally measure that by mass or the grams of something in a solution. But osmotic pressure or the osmotic concentration, the osmolarity of a drink works a little differently. Um, Instead of taking into account how much or how heavy something is, we're really taking into account how many molecules are in a solution. So an apt analogy might be to think about an airplane, right? And if an airplane has 300 seats, well, then it has the capacity for 300 or 300 molecules. In one situation, you might pack on 300 sumo wrestlers. In another situation, you might pack on 300 skinny little runners. Those two planes are going to weigh very, very different amounts right one is going to have a very high kind of uh you know energy potential the other is not in terms of just the mass of those two airplanes um when you think about a solution what's very important about the molecular concentration of a drink is the molecular concentration of a drink dictates which way water will move across the semi-permeable membrane and this is important because the gut is effectively a semi-permeable membrane. So the gut protects you know, the inside of our body from the outside environment. And so when we think about drinking a solution, even though we're putting it in our body, it's not actually in our bodies yet. It's not in our body until it crosses the intestinal membrane. The intestinal membrane on one side has blood or has bodily fluids. And the concentration or the molecular concentration of those bodily fluids is about 280 milliosmoles. So anytime you drink a solution that might be greater than 
that number of 280, right? You get the potential for water not to move into the body, but you get the potential of water moving from inside the body into the intestinal lumen. And that can cause bloating and discomfort and all manner of GI distress, right? Um, the gut is very, very good at transporting molecules. So if you have a very high sugary solution, the gut will begin to move that sugar over, decrease the osmotic pressure of that fluid, and eventually the follow. So, you know, this this GI distress usually only happens when you have very highly concentrated carbohydrate solutions. Um, to deal with this, sports drink manufacturers in the past have, you know, this epiphany or this idea that, hey, well, what if we use a very heavy carbohydrate molecule like maltodextrin? Right? Why don't we just put a bunch of sumo wrestlers on the plane, and that way we have a lower osmotic pressure, yet at the same time we have more energy density. Mm-hmm. And that seemed like a good idea, and that seemed like a very easy way to get a lot of carbohydrate into a given solution. But I think for a lot of people, they still experience GI distress with these maltodextrin, you know, high-calorie drinks, despite the fact that outside of the body they have a low osmotic pressure. Um, and the issue is this, is that, uh, uh, we all forgot somewhere in this whole process that when you drink these solutions that they digest, that the carbohydrate, uh, the enzyme that digests carbohydrate amylase is ample in your mouth and your stomach and your small intestine. And so as soon as we drink these, these solutions, they start to break apart into smaller individual molecules. So back to the plane analogy, It'd be like putting 300 pregnant women on a plane, thinking everything is good because they all have a seatbelt. When the plane takes mid-flight, every single one of them gives birth to quadruplets, right? (laughs) And now you have a major problem in the cabin. You have a major problem inside the intestinal lumen. So, you know, what I was trying to demonstrate with the this little egg uh, demonstration, the membrane of an egg, if you remove the shell with uh, vinegar. Um, is very much like the intestinal membrane. And so if you put that egg in a solution that has a very high molecular concentration, water is going to come out of the egg and the egg is going to shrink. Whereas if you have that egg in a solution where the concentration of fluid that is bathing that egg is lower than what's inside, water will move inside the egg. And so in order to maximize hydration, I think that you you want to you, you you want the best of all the worlds. You want something uh, that is not so concentrated that that so that water can naturally move in. You also want an ingredient list that the gut can recognize so that it can rapidly move uh, molecules across the gut. Again, decreasing the concentration and causing more of a gradient for 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 water exchange. Um, the bottom line is this: is no matter what you drink, whether it's a high carbohydrate solution or even a lower carb- carbohydrate solution, realize that the gut only has a certain capacity to absorb. And for you know uh, the elite athletes that I've worked with, that capacity is about 100 grams of carbohydrate at an hour at most. Mm. So regardless of form, whether it be liquid or solid, you got to make sure that you're consistently pacing that foodstuffs in not trying to get it all in at once because that traffic jam could really present problems down the road.
Mm, fantastic it's awesome mm. stuff uh, obviously with the with the sports drinks you know there's two sides to or three sides to it probably you know you've got your hydration you've got your carbohydrate content and then you've got your electrolyte uh, component to that as well for an individual triathlon you know we, again if we're talking sort of iron distance race how important is that electrolyte balance uh, on that given day and, and what is the function of the electrolytes to help people through that day yeah. Well, let's start with the electrolytes and what they do in the body. Uh, there are a number of different electrolytes uh, that are key to physiological function with the body. They include sodium, chloride ion, calcium, potassium, and magnesium. Um, one thing that people don't realize, however, is that uh, these electrolytes are stored in different compartments in the body. Within the cell, right, in the intracellular compartment, you'll primarily only see potassium, right? There are little sodium-potassium pumps across the cell membrane, which constantly pump sodium out of the cell and potassium into the cell. So the electrolyte environment within the cell is primarily potassium. Outside of the cell, in the space between cells and in our blood compartment, you see primarily just sodium. Uh, you see chloride ion and uh, maybe a tiny bit of, of calcium and maybe just a tiny bit of potassium. But effectively, you have this, this kind of um, setup where inside the cell you have potassium, outside you have sodium. What ends up happening is when you uh, have a cell signal or even an electrical potential when the brain is talking to the rest of the body, you set up these electrical potentials that allow the body to communicate. Effectively, our whole entire nervous system is an electrical system. And those electrical potentials occur when gates open up and sodium fluxes into uh, the cell, creating what's called an action, action potential or uh, chemical electrical potential. Um, so these electrolytes are vital for allowing our nervous system to function and for allowing our cells to function properly. Um, without proper electrolyte balance, uh, we fall apart and uh, uh, not only very sick, but we can get you know extremely dysfunctional. Uh, for this reason, the body will actually prioritize the electrolyte concentration within the blood over any other parameter. And so while we often think of, of hydration um, first being associated with how much water we're losing, the reality is is that, the thirst mechanism is wholly uh, calibrated sodium concentration. Um, that blood sodium concentration normally sits at a very, very constant level of 140, 145 milliequivalents per liter, which is about 3,500 milligrams of sodium per liter. And so you can think of our, 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 our bloodstream almost like a pool that needs a certain amount of chlorine to keep it you know, um, disinfected mm. or safe for swimming. And what ends up happening if we're losing water and that concentration goes up, we end up getting thirsty. So we drink enough water to bring that concentration back down to normal. And we're hopefully properly hydrated. But in the case of exercise, what's happening is that we're not only losing water through sweat, but we're also losing sodium chloride or basic table salt because there's not a lot of potassium or calcium um, or magnesium in the bloodstream 90 percent of what we lose in our sweat 
is good old-fashioned table salt. And between the sodium and the chloride ion, if we don't replace the chloride ion, there aren't any real ill effects with respect to the generation of electrical potentials. But if we don't replace sodium, we are really, really screwed. So here's what happens when we exercise. We're losing about 1,000 milligrams of sodium per liter. Blood sodium is about 3,500 milligrams of sodium per liter. And so effectively, we're losing more water than we are losing salt. And so when we exercise, the sodium concentration begins to rise in our blood. It makes us thirsty. And if we were to drink water to satiate our thirst, we would end up drinking less water than what we lose because we've also lost some sodium out of the body. So when the amount of sodium in the body is actually less, it takes less water for us to maintain the electrolyte balance. And so with plain water alone, what happens over time is if you're simply drinking to thirst with plain water, your body will preferentially allow yourself to become dehydrated and lose water in order to maintain that constant electrolyte environment. If you end up drinking plain water on your thirst, well then you're gonna start to dilute out that sodium concentration and that sets yourself up for some real problems, an issue called hyponatremia, where now the salt concentration in your blood is not proper and your brain now has a hard time talking to the rest of the body, right? Um, you get all sorts of, of, of issues that rise. Um, so first and foremost, you know, the, the body's thirst mechanism, I think, is a very, very good one. Um, you need to listen to that thirst. You can't drink beyond that thirst. Otherwise, you do run the issue of having hyponatremia. Um, if you want the best of both worlds, if you want to maintain your electrolyte balance and your water balance, the very simple solution is to drink a, a, a product with a similar amount of salt then you're losing in sweat or eating foods that replace the similar amount of salt that you're losing in your sweat. Um, and so electrolyte concentration of a sports drink is, is very, very important because if you can drink something that is as salty as your sweat, then your thirst mechanism becomes a really good judge of maintaining both electrolyte balance as well as your water balance. And the two are needed to maintain optimal performance. Does that make sense? It does. We've, we've had other guys come on the show, sports science guys, saying, you know, in terms of ingesting sodium, etc., it's it's such a drop in the ocean um, mm. uh, that it's not really worth it. But what you're saying is during an event, it is still worth it. And you are, it, it is more than just a drop in the ocean in terms of what you're getting from a sports drink. Yeah, it, it's more than a drop in the ocean because it also drives your water balance right? Mm, yeah. And without having the right amount of salt, you, over a long period of time, these ultra endurance events, you start to become progressively more dehydrated. And after about a two or 3% water loss, performance and the ability to thermoregulate really, really start to right? Um, and so for short-term events, uh, this may not be an issue because you do have ample sodium reserves, but over multiple days and over long this starts to matter a lot. That all being said, you still fundamentally have to listen to your body and listen to thirst and not try to drink beyond it, right? Because there have been plenty of incidences where athletes, knowing that they're losing water weight, will just start to pound water and end up getting very, very sick. Um, so it, it, it does matter. 
it is vital and I've seen huge improvements in performance when we're getting the sodium back into athletes. I think the other issue too is that uh, sodium sweat concentration is not equal across different athletes. Mm-hmm. There's a big genetic determinant of how much salt you lose in your sweat and that can vary from as little as 400 milligrams all the way up as high as 2,000 milligrams per liter and in cystic fibrosis you might be losing all the salt in your sweat. Um, you know, to, to that end, I think that one very important thing that athletes can do to try to learn what they need to take, take themselves pre and post exercise and uh, figure out how much water they lose. They need to also drink by thirst. And if they're losing a significant amount of water weight during their activity, say more than 3% up to 5%, then all they really need to do is add more salt back into their food or into their drink during these activities, and that will hopefully drive the thirst mechanism for them to consume more water, and they end up being more hydrated, right? And, and would you recommend that they get like a sweat test done so they realize how much salt, because as you say, different people have different needs around that's that. A, that's an easy way. Yeah, that's a very easy way uh, to do it. You can get a sodium sweat test done. Uh, there are sweaty, sodium sweat test devices that have been developed for the diagnosis of cystic fibrosis. And so this technology is, uh, you know, fairly available. Um, but they weigh themselves. They can see how much they're actually losing. And if they're losing a lot and they know that they are drinking their thirst and that the logistics around getting ample water and fluid is not an issue, then they can simply incrementally increase the sodium and see if that improves the situation. Mm. Right. So there are both high-tech and low-tech ways to – to, to, to deal with it. Alan, I mean, I'm loving, I could probably sit here and talk to you for bloody hours, but I'm conscious of, uh, conscious of your time as well. Any, anything else you want to get out there in terms of uh, anything you're doing or any resources? You know, you've, I, I know you've, you've touched on a few really cool topics there, but people are probably going, I want to hear more. Um, any resources or any other myths or anything like that that, that frustrate you that you want to debunk? Well, I think that... Drinking the thirst is something that I believe in uh, as long as you have the right uh, solution. So, you know, the idea that your, your, your natural hedonistic response, especially around both thirst and hunger, is, is wrong, I think is fairly errant. I think that we can listen to ourselves and we can go by feel and that uh, the nature of being an endurance athlete is knowing your body well enough that your hedonistic response or drive, your sensation of hunger and thirst can help you survive and help you perform at your best. Um, We're all our own individual experience is not necessarily a a dogma or a belief system. It's a process. It's a way of solving a problem. And we can each be our own scientific, right? Um, So I think that that, that's really, really uh, essential. Listen to yourself. Um, listen to what your own individual needs are and create some real process around how you uh, discover what you need in these type of events because it's going to be different, a little different for everybody out there. Um, beyond that, you know, I think that there is kind of uh, this, this, this big issue around how an athlete is supposed to eat. And what I've seen in the endurance community is that that's driven a lot of um, dysfunction. Right. Mm. 
it's 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 caused caused a lot of eating disorder and the biggest disorder that i see is when athletes begin to eat in exclusion of their family they begin to believe that because they need to have a certain type of diet that they can't sit down and share a meal with their friends and 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 family so if you're an endurance athlete out there and you're finding yourself thinking that you need to eat alone i say that's a problem and you need to figure out how to reintegrate your friends and family into eating right because sharing a meal with others is probably one of the most important things that we do as human beings and it's essential to our both physical and emotional health right mm-hmm. and if you don't have that foundation there's no trick out there on the in the field that's going to make you better mm. uh, if you've got time one final question around because we know we've got lots of athletes that do low carb high fat just like a, sure. a tiny pricey on on your sort of experience on that in terms of uh, performance and sort of general well-being just your thoughts yeah I, I think it just depends on intensity and it depends on duration when you're dealing with scenarios where you know the utilization of collection stores um, are important and you know even endurance events that have a lot of uh, moments of very very high intensity work well then carbohydrate is going to be important but if you're doing an endurance event where uh, steady state you know, you're primarily relying as as fat as a fuel source because the intensity is lower. Then shifting towards a higher fat, lower carbohydrate diet might have some benefits. Effectively, if you think about it in a very pragmatic way, you need to fuel the body what the body is using according to the duration and intensity of activity. And the higher intensity, intense activities require more carbohydrate than the lower in intensity activities. Right. Um, that that's it's fairly commonsensical that being said there are also some tricks to improve the fat ad- adaptation process um and being fat adapted or being able to use fat as a fuel source uh does allow athletes to spare glycogen or carbohydrate allowing them to have that high octane fuel for those moments that 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 are needed um that being said i i in my experience um, have seen that that fat adapted process is probably more about how you train and potentially less about how you eat, right? And in order to get fat adapted, you still need to do those long duration activities. You still have to put yourself in a, in a position where those fuel sources are tapped into, right? And that substrate is not going to fat adapt you. Right. Um, that all being said, there might be some little tricks that you can play with respect to how you periodize your food that, you know, uh, when your training is less intense or you're in a recovery period, you might not only decrease the calories that you eat to try to become more fat adapted, but you might also switch the composition a little bit. But as you're getting into your event, you may switch back to a high, higher carbohydrate diet so that you have ample glycogen stores and glycogen stores can vary from as little as you know 17 grams per kilogram of lean muscle mass all the way up to 35 grams per kilogram of lean muscle mass so there's almost a two-fold increase depending upon what you do in your diet mm-hmm. um so while i know that people are out there experimenting and trying to find the optimal balance um i think that the simple answer is that it's about context and that there is no hard and fast performance optimization rule around substrate manipulation. 
Awesome, guys. If you want to check out a bit more about Alan, check out the Feed Zone cookbooks and also the Feed Zone portables. If you want to check out his uh, his products, you go to Scratch Labs and you'll find it all there. So, Alan, thanks so much for your time and uh, hopefully we can get you on another time to go into a few other topics. But that's been awesome. Yeah, you're a star, mate. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. <clears throat> John, your thoughts? Awesome. Really great insight there. Obviously, uh, we're always treading through the minefield of nutrition and we're sometimes getting conflicting advice, but Alan's one of those guys who gives you really good practical advice and uh, he, he was rather, than, ju- rather than just the scientific side of things. He well, beans well, he's too. also a good describer because he'll put it in analogies which kind of, you know, for us plebs can kind of go, oh, okay, that makes sense. One thing I loved about that interview is, you know, to me, wisdom is, is the, the ability to have the greater view and often a lot of the people who we have on about nutrition and can be a bit coldish um and there is definitely an aspect of cult in in Mm. nutrition uh, you know not just in our sport but in society um and i the greatest example of me was that do you ever watch my kitchen rules i don't like it but i have watched it yeah joe i i I, like joe likes the kitchen shows master chef I'll watch because Master Chefs, they're just, it's about loving cooking. Mm. And, you know, they'll put pressure on people, but it's actually just about the enjoyment of loving cooking. And it's kind of a core cool environment. Uh, Kitchen Rules is very much kind of scandalous kind of TV. But um, they had this woman on there one time, and she just claimed she was the most healthiest person of all time. <sighs> But she was the most unhealthy person you could ever see. She was so restricted in her diet, so yep. anal about everything. And to me, she was the most, she was just a, the biggest picture of unhealthiness. And that's what I liked about Dr. Lim is that he understands that sure nutrition is important, but when you're limiting your life as in not spending time with your friends and family because of your stupid diet, you're not healthy. Well, the, uh, and the, another thing that I, I, I watched a little interview that he did elsewhere as well, um, Dr. Lim, and really just saying, uh, you know, the things that are important to him in life, you know, exercising every day. Mm. That's he's doing things that make him happy, and uh, and then another one is preparing food and enjoying food with your family. So not just viewing food as a a staple just to get it in there for, for fuel, but actually enjoy the process of cooking and then enjoy sitting down with your family. And I, I really subscribe to that as well I love I really enjoy cooking and I enjoy cooking something nice and healthy and nutritious mm. and you're sitting down with the family going this is good fuel for our family and I feel you know, good about it maybe it's an interesting discussion we could have it's got me thinking about something else as you were talking there is um, what is the, the real cost to our health with doing Ironman you know like if we sat down and we were to say what's a healthy life because one of the problems with our sport is to the external world we look extremely healthy Mm -hmm. um physically generally speaking most i mean athletes have a a Mm -hmm. physical look that is healthy um we tend to exercise which most people struggle with and they tend to you know be in control of our diet but there is many aspects of our sport that makes us very unhealthy, like exclusion. Mm-hmm. You know, lots of, you know, I went through that place where I woke up at the end of my own career and kind of realised I was a pretty lonely person. And it was a, a tough oh, moment. I was here for you, Bevan. Well, give me many hugs. But no, you know, it's, it's there's, there's some parts of our sport that actually work against us being healthy people. Mm. And, you know, to me, one of the things you've always got to think about when you goal set is this whole idea of what's the cost of this goal. And because if, we don't contemplate that 
then sometimes we wake up at the other side. And, and in many ways, my, my 20s was that. Like, I woke up at the end of my 20s and I'd achieved many cool things, but to the exclusion of some fundamental things around health, like social interaction, like those things, that ultimately cost me in my life. Um, and I had to work on that moving forward. So I think it may be a really good idea for you and I to have a discussion around when is Iron Man actually hurting the greater health of your life? Mm-hmm. Um and what's a better balance around that? Now, there's always going to be an imbalance in an Ironman life because mm. just the demands of the sport. But maybe sometimes you can go, do you know what? Maybe a sub nine hour Ironman isn't the right goal. Maybe it's a 10 hour Ironman with a life like this, if you get what Keeping I mean. Keeping some balance in yeah. there. Keeping some balance in an unbalanced life. Yeah, because it's, you know, there's a lot of people in the sport who are struggling because of the sport and so it's a big subject okay john um wangers of the week i'm gonna do a couple of quick wangers we, of we the may week. be aborting this uh, <laughs> your phone's going crazy man it is um so i probably should turn the sound off shouldn't i yeah you probably should turn it off <laughs> if, if, i'm gonna have three people a bit of a bit of love today um tim piggott who was uh helped us out on epic camp france um a couple of years ago and i've still got one or two spaces left on next year's camp if you're keen. He's leading this week's leaderboard with the 10 hours and 9 minutes of training so That's far fun. this week already. Yeah. And he's only, only just started. But last week, one of the guys I mentioned on uh, our discussion, who's a contributor to the show, Volker Voigt, he had the longest total distance with 605 kilometres. And one of our new patrons to the show, which we'll be announcing next week, I think I've got him down, Flo Hegel from Austria. Sorry, Flo, I probably got your name wrong. Um, but here, the longest activity was 7 hours, 39 minutes and 20 seconds. Nice work, you guys. Love your work. Okay, John, uh, questions Good and answers. answers. Now, we got John put a bit of a link up onto our Facebook page um, last week, just talking about a petition that someone's put up on ipetitions.com, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, um, around the idea of age group testing at Ironman races. Um, and it basically just says here, age groups want to have more dope testing. Let's not be naive. Not only pros dope, age group is pro dope as well, perhaps even more. We ask Ironman to perform an out-of-competition surprise testing. We want World 70.3's Ironman age group podium top three finishes tested. We want fair races. It was Rudolf von Berg uh, set this up, and he was going for 1,000 signatures, and he's already up to 1,347. So he's reached his goal. Realistically, this ain't going to do crap. (laughs) (laughs) These petitions are a load of rubbish. Nice awareness. Good PR. Like it. You can petition. You know, if you did, did you sign? Did you agree? Uh, I have not chosen whether I want to do that yet or not, Bevan. Uh, you can take it to Iron Man, and it may make them think about it, but it ain't happening. And I'm going to rant a little bit on this, not on Rudolph or anything for for doing this. Doing in in competition testing isn't doing diddly squat. If you get caught at a race, you are a complete and utter moron, or you do have legitimate. You have legitimately taken yeah. something. Um, for health reasons no inadvertently you didn't know you were taking it so when I see a pro getting busted at a race I'm going and they're claiming their innocence uh, I kind of go you're either a moron or you're actually legit because you get busted at a race you are a complete nutter schmuck Uh, so the only way that age group testing is going to work is if you do out of competition testing which is fraught with challenges in terms of locating where the athletes are and so on so respect for for getting some awareness out there but unless we can figure out a way that you can test out of competition for age groupers it's going to be a bit of a struggle i think the only way forward with age group not not the only way forward but one way forward with age group 
competing is as you're going through the entry process, there's one big screen really saying you've got to do a tick box that's really clear that you're not doping and you're trying to change that culture and actually make people start to think about it. You're still going to get the cheats, but we've got to try to create a culture, cultural change rather than another rule that people just go... There's that book, Predictably Rational, by Dan Ariely, which is a great book, which I recommend everyone reads. But they talk about um, ethics in, in different um, professions. Mm. And professions that have code of ethics, they, they you know, it's just a token that no one really adheres to. Mm. But if they make people read the code of ethics every day, people act ethically better yeah. in their career. So they did it with lawyers, and they kind of got them to, every day they had to read their code of ethics. And just that awareness around it made them do it. Now, obviously, I mean, I can't make you do it every day. But it is that kind of thing of, as a community, we need to be having those markers along the way to help them do it. I think also one other thing around drug testing is the cost is just prohibitive, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, totally. You know, the person who invents a $20 drug test, that would, you know, that changes the game, doesn't it? So if you do want to find out a bit more about this, go to our Facebook page, and there's been quite a bit of discussion there around some people saying, yeah, let's do it, do this, let's do this, and other people are a bit more pragmatic about it, saying... It is a bit of a waste of time and the cost. Would you be, if you go into Kona, would you be prepared to pay an extra $50 on top of your entry fee for them to do more drug testing? And I think the answer to that for a lot of people is going to be no. Mm. Um, uh, would you? If it was out of competition, I probably would. If it was in competition, I'd say no, waste of time. Not a waste of time, but. You're really. the odd person, don't they? But yeah, as you say, the I, I would say, you know, as said, when you enter a big race, you've got to go through a page that clearly says doping sucks. You can't do it. And, uh, yeah. There's always going to be the one person who ruins it for everyone, isn't there, John? There is. There's always going to be that, that schmidt. Just just uh, a couple of quick things. Um, John, you really want to give them the pros of money, oh, I had several. I had several people contact me. The, uh, the albatross, um, Matt Young, was saying, Bevan poo-pooed your idea last week, and I think it was a great idea. Well, I think, I think so John wants to do a poll, but I can't, we can't. We can only poll patrons. Yes, only patrons can answer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so patrons, uh, I'll, I'll look out for a poll. I'll probably email you all as well. Is Do you prefer the idea of us taking a, a one of your patrons across the corner every second year? Or do you prefer... I, I think it would be a, a vote. Because they signed up for... They signed up for it to go in the draw. Mm-hmm. And so if one person is like, oh, I still want the draw, mm-hmm. then... But other people might go, I like, so so the idea is we either have, as we do at the moment, where we take a patron every second year over to Kona, the the counter idea is instead of doing that, we actually give a a male and female pro some money every second year and they are the lowest ranking uh, pro on debut at Kona. So they're going there for the first time and they're a second tier pro. Who reckon this was a good idea? Who who emailed you? Matt the Albatross. you, You know nothing, mate. You know nothing. You give you give your money to nobody. Then Get a chance to go over and hang out with the boys. No, but then but then you know these. You feel like you're then invested a little bit. You're helping out the poor struggling pro. And uh, uh, here's what we could do: is we could do an IM Talk fund, and everyone could donate a dollar. We're still doing this poll as well. Okay, uh, but that's a good idea. But we probably just have to just check whether we can. We're allowed to do that in terms well, of money. giving money. You know, yeah, just call, you're just a sponsor. The sponsor by him talk. Yeah, but then, oh, yeah, okay. L- accountants and lawyers, let us know what we can and can't do. 
John, we're not going to be... Well, bloody eBay, when we had the earthquakes and I did all the fundraising for that, they shut them all down and stuff. Oh, did they? And I had to re... Oh, my God, I spent a lot of time on that. Thank you to everybody who did um, oh, bid on those, but it was a bloody nightmare because we were in a registered charity. I couldn't do it, and... Oh, there are lots of rules out there, Bevan. So are you you're a registered charity now? Sorry? So you're a charity case now? <laughs> well, some people think so, but no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> so look out, Patriots. He's given a poll. But the problem is, John, I, don't, I think... It's not. A, it's not. A, it's not a democracy this one because they signed up for something. Well, then they can. Maybe choose we have two, to, they, they can. can have, we're going to split. You can put your name on. Go in the drawer. Well, they can choose. If they don't like that, they can not be a patron. Yeah, There's one thing we don't want that. We don't want our patrons leaving. But equally, <laughs> we might have plenty of people out there listening at the moment that aren't patrons that go. That's a good idea. I want to help out the pros a little bit. I'm going to become a patron, knowing that if some of my dollars is going to help them yeah, get to Kona. Yeah, cool. Uh, as long as it gets more patrons, John, I'm all for it. Because Whatever gets more patrons, I'm all for it. We make a fortune out of the show, you guys. Now, John, you've finally seen the light. No, I haven't you're seen You're fine. It. He's fine. I was on his case. You guys have heard me. The I've, greatest of all times come into the show. I've tweaked the greatest of all time. The, great, the goat. We're yeah. going to do a goat series. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, this will be something I'll tweak away at, but I'm going to need buy-in from the listeners as well because what I'm planning on doing is a greatest of each decade my male and female looking at across all distances and just comparing them a little bit so it's across each decade and then it, guys, it. It, there's, there's no such thing as greatest of all time it's greatest at the, of the end decade. of each section I'm going to give my opinion on which one I okay. think is the goat but you know, especially in, in like some of those earlier years, you know, what I'm going to be looking at is Kona results. I'm going to look at World Championship Series and try to look at a few of the other I think events that have been around. The first question we should do is a discussion. I've got a discussion of the week, two discussions a week. I want write to them have. down and then send them to me. Well, okay. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> so, two discussions of the week I want to have. First of all, is Brownlee going to be Frodo or Lessing? That's the discussion I want to have as it goes along. Um, but the second discussion I want to have is. What's the criteria? You know, because I think I think there's more that it's not just wins. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, wins is going to be a big part of it. But when we think of a goat, you know, a goat is often who has the biggest impact on the sport. Mm-hmm. You know, like if we look at rugby, you you'd say Richie McCaw is the goat, is the greatest rugby player of all time. But then you look at Jonah Lomu, mm-hmm. and Jonah Lomu, what he the significance he had for rugby around the world. You could almost argue, in some ways, he's, he, it gives him a reason to be up there, and and I think what we've got to determine is, and it's it, it, let's be honest, these discussions are stupid, and you know there's no real right answer, um, but they're a good discussion to have, and I think there's some interesting things that will come out of it, and I think one of the things maybe we'll do as a discussion next week is, what's the criteria, and and when you think of all sports, when you think of the greatest of all time, obviously their performances matter. But also, what's the criteria that you need to think about? Because to me, things like significance on the sport is really important. Um, reach outside of the the sport, uh, all those types of things as well. Uh, the domination of of their competition and stuff like that. So maybe in next week's discussion, you're writing it down right now. Yeah? I'm just about to. Good, good, and do my lesson. Give, one give as me well. my wording. Um, what is if to to def- if we're going to define the greatest of all time? Oh Jesus, how am I supposed to? Ju- I'm not that quick at dictating. <laughs> <laughs> just put it in a bullet format, a few words. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, what's the criteria for goat? There you go. go. That's what I like. I do think it's. I think we're going to have a great one with this one. I think it's It's going to take a while. Yeah, totally. And I do think we will probably go the different sides of the sport. But I do think we might be able to get to a goat at the end of it. 
Uh, I disagree, yeah. but happy to disagree on that. Yep. So what I'm going to need you guys to do is I'll occasionally post things on Facebook. If you're not on Facebook, send me through, but I'm going to do, each time we do it, it'll be a male and female for a particular decade. Uh, so if you're not on Facebook, feel free to email them through. Um, bullet points, don't send me paragraphs. Bullet points are good. Uh, and we, Especially in the 80s and 90s. No, I'm pretty good on the 90s. But maybe we'll just do a Facebook feed. Mm. each week because the thing about it like that's what I love about it, like because the thing is you, you know it's two of the obvious names that are going to come up are like Brownlee and, and Ellen but then you kind of say well level of competition now Ellen's a rock star and he had good competition mm. but he's had the level of a Brownlee mm-hmm. you know and so like oh John this is five excited. years of our show <laughs> finally I'm, I'm glad you come to the to, you, go, you moved away from the dark side come to the Jedi side I'm happy with you John we've got a new patron we have indeed. Okay, we've got Ed Schmidt, and he's got my wife, two boys, and I live in central Wisconsin, about 25 miles from where I'm in Wisconsin is held. I'm a medic for the U.S. Air Force and work in Madison, Wisconsin. I started triathlon and for tries in 2010 and have been raced Ironman for the last five seasons. Thanks for what you boys do. I especially keen on your rants and Bevan's reactions to them sometimes. I've got a rant. Actually, this is something else that didn't come. I've got a rant. Okay, well, well, a let's, rant. Let's, let's Schmidt. Okay, so what I'm thinking is unbreakable. Unbreakable Jimmy Schmidt. Sorry, Kimmy Schmidt. Jimmy Schmidt, isn't it? Unbreakable Kimmy. Jimmy Schmidt. Well, Kimmy Schmidt is a program called Unbreakable on oh, okay. on I Netflix. Schmidt, I haven't never watched it. You know it. No, it's a chick. Uh, Kimmy Schmidt. Come, I think it's Kimmy Schmidt. Okay, he's unbreakable. So, that's applicable to our sport as well. Yeah. Um, oh. Unbreakable. Ed, the unbreakable. There you go, Schmidt. Okay, nice John. Work, let, let you rent out. Oh, but, wait a second. If you want to be a patron, go to www.imtalk.me. You can win a trip to Kona, or you may lose that opportunity. <laughs> you made it to a pro. <laughs> so get in now to get a trip to Kona. If you come in at $5, that's like a coffee coffee a bloody month for getting all this entertainment. Oh, coffee, a month. coffee a month. That's cheaper than buying your instant coffee. Exactly. Oh, get on it, team. Get uh, on it. 10 bucks, you get a swim cap. I'm just about to order some some fancy new swim caps. Uh, and come in at 20 bucks a month, so there's a coffee a week. You get a swim cap and a quality merino. I was, I I was someone emailed me the other day asking Bean. how many what percentage of our listeners are patrons, and I worked it out and it's less than one percent. Yes, well less than one percent. Yes, and they came back and said that's a disgrace. It is, and I said, well, I would love it to be ten percent. Yes, we would. Two <laughs> percent would be pretty cool. So if you if you if you're on the fence and you want to support something that's a big part of your triathlon week, by all means go to the website dub dub dub. I am talked to me, John. Come on, let it go. Where's where's the rent? This stems from last night. It boiled over a little bit. We were out running. Boiled uh, over? Yep. And uh, so we're running along, and I'm just getting a bit sick of people with bikes. You've got to be lit up when you're out there. You've got to have, you know, high vis is, is all good. You've got to have your rear light. You've got to have your front light. What's starting to get on my nerves a bit, Bevan, is people that have lights that are so bright they're just blinding. Oh, I do agree. And so I was running along last night. We're on this little path next to Hanson Park. Yep. And uh, we're just coming up to this little bridge to get over. I Honestly, I was blinded by this bloody light. Blinded by, by the light. light. And I just said, I, 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 I didn't yell an F-bomb, but I said something to the extent of that bloody light is too bright. And uh, he carried on cycling. Couldn't see him because it was pitch black. Couldn't hear because he had earphones in. Probably did, <laughs> yeah. And this has happened on several... The other one is the strobe lights. To- really good at being visual. But the other day, had somebody had one on the handlebars, one on the helmet. You know, the flashing yeah, ones? Yeah. Really bright. I just about had a did bloody... dancing? Just about had a you fit. Know? You know? <laughs> you an epileptic an fit. An epileptic fit. So I was getting really annoyed by these bright lights. However... <laughs> Here we go, you're a hypocrite. <laughs> However, I got home 
And I thought, better have a look at my light. <laughs> Shit, that's a bright light. <laughs> uh, so my my Can you dim them? well, my light is on dimmed, and it's still probably a little bit too bright. It's very good for going out and riding on the country some, roads. Like, even when you're driving in a car, oh, like it's blinding. I was driving, yeah, and and the cycle lights more powerful than a car yeah, light. It is. You gotta tip them down so they're actually helping you you'll still get seen but helping you actually see the road uh, so just have a think about where your lights are positioned it, mine is pointing down so it's okay but I was <laughs> looking at it going that's pretty bright uh, but have a bit of a think about what impact you're having and especially those strobe ones bloody hell they are oh yeah because yeah, I was driving past the car I drove past the bike last week and uh, man it was like because the problem is it goes in your rear view mirror yeah. so it's actually a distraction to your driving and as you said it's Chances are more likely of getting hit. So just have a bit of a think about your lighting setup. Okay, just get just get cheap through. It's all for you, Ed. Ed, unbreakable. Oh, it's unbreakable. There you go. Here's your rent. Here's <sighs> your rent. Um, <laughs> just uh, what was I, I was going to talk about lights, but I can't remember. Oh, I know. I just keep singing Ian Wood lately. Yes. I think he's, I think you know the wife's called Stalker. Yeah. But Wife rolled her ankle last night at running. Oh no, she right. Everyone was, I was like, there's all these jackets. We're down at the park and I say, you've got to be here by about 10 to, and then we run yeah. back to where we started. All these jackets there, I don't know where the hell they were. And I was thinking, somebody's hurt themselves out there. Don't know where they are. And she had rolled her ankle. But she sent me an email before and I think she's okay. Oh, uh, good. Because I think he's stalking me now. Yeah. Because I see him every Wednesday morning. I have my runners going up and down the hill. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's, he does his hill repeats. Yeah. yeah. And he was telling me a few weeks ago, as he was doing a hill repeats, he was listening to the cat story. All right. He does his stepping at the gym as well. We get out of the pool on Friday mornings, me and Tyrone, on the stepper machine at the pool. We just get out of the pool every week and just laugh at him through the windows at Pioneer. So you get out of the pool and yeah. you've got those windows to the gym and you see Ian on his on a stepper, stepping away and we just laugh at him. I think he's stalking both of us. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even one time when he wasn't biking, he was running. I saw him on the Wednesday morning. Yeah. Yeah, with the stalker family, I think we'll call them. Stalker Could be. Uh, John, what you got? Uh, so I didn't run in the weekend, I was sick, which I was really pissed off about, because I was really looking forward to having that run, it was the 10k champs, and I was, it was one of those ones, where yeah, I'm sick, but I wasn't chronically sick, but I knew that I'd run miserably, still had, had a bit of chest, had the block nose, and I just did not want to go and put in a piss poor performance, and then end up feeling, uh, probably making myself worse, if you've got anything on your chest and you go and race hard, oh. that's pretty dumb, that, yeah. can, that can actually do you some serious long term damage, and I thought... Just gonna have to let this one go. Do as you say. What do, what do I say? Do do as you say. Do as I say. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, if it'd been a lower intensity endurance thing, probably would have done it. Yeah. But I was just like, I'm gonna be going for it, and I don't want to kill myself here. So I have to live to fight another day, which I was pretty pissed off though. But I would have got smoked by Andrea Hewitt. That's for sure. That would have hurt your feelings. Would have done actually. No, you, you knew she's better than you. Didn't know she was racing. Didn't even know she was back. So she'll be getting ready for the Gold Coast. Did she win? She did. Wow. That must be degrading for the local runners. Mm. You know, all the local runners who think they're pretty classy. Mm. And then some triathlete turns up who's in the last part of her career. Yeah. Pulls their pants down. Yeah. yeah. Solid. But, uh, so other than that, um, just chugging along. Going to see John Hallerman's uh, launching a book this afternoon. Oh, really? He's got a new book out. I think it might be Are around we gonna get his... Him on? Sorry? We're going to get him on? Uh, I think it's more of a... Uh, entertainment book about his length. I think it's about the length of New Zealand. Um Didn't you do a book on that? Well, he did the the misery of staying upright. That was years ago when they did the the sort of the kayak 
bike run length of New Zealand, but this one was when he did the continuous, not the continuous, but the mountain bike length of New Zealand, <gasps> uh, and then they weren't going on the roads, and it was just a brevet style. You you just oh, make your right. own make your own way. And my in laws actually knew the person he was doing it with, and the person he did it with, I don't think he even made it to Auckland, um, which from is the, going from, from Cape Rehanger, which is only like probably day three, and he had heart problems. So oh, then no. Helen's I think ended up doing the whole thing by him, more or less by himself. Uh, and he's not the most gifted mountain biker, um, and uh, but I think he got through it okay. Well, no, he got through it. So I think that's what the book's about, I he think. got through it is the mm. key. Any other goss? What's up this weekend? What's up this weekend? Uh, can't think of too much this weekend. I know my daughter's going away. I know my son's got a running race. Oh, who's your daughter going to? She's going away to, to Georgie Patterson. Uh, not Georgie Patterson. Phil Patterson's daughter's batch for birthday weekend. Oh, nice. nice. And that's about it. Mm. Bevan, what's happening in your world? Oh, I turned 41. Turned 41 on Sunday. Yes. Yep, thank you everyone who sent me emails and Facebook posts. It was really nice. Um, Pre- my presence in the mail. Is is presence in the mail as per every year. Good, yep. I, I, just, I actually just, that's the highlight. Yeah. You know, I go, John's present. He makes me a, he makes me a picture. He draws it for me. He <laughs> draws a picture of him and I sit on the couch. Yeah. <laughs> because we've got a new studio this year. That's why you did a new one, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so I had a had family round. Had, had our first, wasn't really a party, gathering. Mm-hmm. We had uh, about, oh, about 30 people come around every mm-hmm. night. And uh, lots of kids, John. Mm-hmm. And when you've got a new house, and there's lots of kids running around like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Great. <laughs> and we're quite lucky, really. We are quite lucky because it's, it's not the smallest house. And so you could, but kids, just imagine kids running around like crazy. Yeah. All night long, mm-hmm. good times. Good kids times. going crazy. But the funniest thing was we've got a mate called Ludi, and he's got a boy uh, or a stepson. And so, so I go into my bedroom. He's laying on my bed on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who he was talking to. I, um, he was. He, was, he must have been there for a while. But <laughs> he's literally just laying on the bed, got the like stretched out. How old was that? How old? Oh, eight. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, eight or nine. Yeah. Made himself at home. Yeah. Made himself comfortable. And uh, and then I noticed that my so my bed charge, my phone charger for my bed had been taken upstairs and been used in my office. Oh, nice. <laughs> so the kids, I'm glad the kids feel comfortable in my new house. Yeah. Uh, Porno came over. Porno saying he bought some of the Nike shoes. Oh, the ones with the... Yeah, he says they're really firm. out yeah. of it. He's not running at the moment because he got a bit of an injury, but he said it feels, they feel really out of it. It feels like they push you forward when you run. Mm. Mm, so that's pretty interesting. Um, so, and I, I I don't drink, John, because I'm a fitness Your body's a temple. Yeah, I don't put sin in my body. Um, but I tell you what, I had a lot of food over the weekend. Nice. Birthday weekends are good, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. And my mate, my mate, Blair Norton, top five biscuit of all time. Sorry? Were you not listening? I wasn't. I was looking at my Epic Camp France uh, bike jersey designs and I'm liking what I see. See, 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 see guys? You say I interrupt. I have to because he doesn't listen to me. <laughs> um, so, had a beautiful biscuit. Yeah. Are you listening? Yeah. yeah. See, like that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's very close to the last one you had. Uh, that's classic <laughs> French classic French champions jersey. Um, and then, this week we're going to the Tron, John. The Ashburtron or no, the Hamiltron? After Hamiltron this weekend, that's kind of cool. And then I'm home for a month. Nice. Yeah, and then we go to Hawaii. What day do we go to Hawaii? I don't know. Tuesday? You know, I'm going to premium economy on the way there, John, and I yeah. paid for it. Oh, 
Yeah. You throw some peanuts back to me and Belinda and uh, cattle class. Oh, you're going premium economy. Sorry? I thought you were doing the league premium. No. no. I'm going to go premium both ways. Oh, my God. Right. There'll be a gold We're member. going on the 9th of October. Yes. Oh, I'm guaranteed gold member if I paid for premium economy. You are. Oh, oh, such aspirational fellas we are. <laughs> have you have you been gold member before, haven't you? I've never had a gold member. Yeah, you've never had a gold <laughs> member. <laughs> That's what Belinda tells you. Um, yeah, how close? To how many points you got? Let's go. Let's pull out the app. How many points you got? I need two hundred. I think I need. Okay, they keep dropping off. Was it? They keep dropping off. Yeah, that's the problem. Each month you think you're close. Okay, so I currently need... Here we go, here we go. I know this is great podcasting. I booked my flights kind of yesterday, but when you go those che- El Cheapo flights, you hardly get any points. I need 96. You get squat for going to Kona. If you go premium Kona, you pay for it, yeah, you'll be right. Yeah, I reckon I'll get it, eh? Mm. And then I'll get Amsterdam, mm. come back through LA. Now, I'm going to LA. Do I do a meetup? No. Do I need, do I need somewhere to stay? <laughs> if someone in LA has got a bed that I can crash in for three days I arrive Sunday night Yeah, I will arrive I'll probably by the time I get to a house probably pretty late and I'll leave Wednesday so I need Sunday, Monday or Tuesday mm-hmm. I don't mind crashing on someone's couch there you go. so if anyone in LA last time I stayed with Michael but they've got a kid now so I don't want to bug them mm-hmm. um, but Michael if you're still listening I'll catch up we'll catch up for lunch or something um, and if people want to meet up I've only got three days and I'm going to be just hanging out. I love LA. So there you go. So if anyone wants to let me come stay at the house, so me some money. There you <laughs> I'll go. Buy you a gift. You know, I'll give you a. Have we got, have we got a nine talk t shirt? Um, I could find something. Yep, good. You'll get a John gift pack. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there we go. Right, let's wrap it up. I'm Russ. I'm Mendo. Trainer. Train smart. Kia, Kia car. car.